Welcome to Understanding Christianity, a podcast that discusses the issues related to what it means to be a Christian, what Christians believe, the foundations of our faith. I'm Pastor Sean Cole. I'm your host. I'm the lead pastor at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as a professor at Colorado Christian University. Last podcast, we began looking at the doctrine of salvation. What does it mean to be saved? When Christians talk about salvation, what do we mean by that? What does the Bible teach about that? And we began last podcast looking at what was called the order of salvation and how God has arranged the way that He saves sinners. And so we're going to continue on that trajectory in this podcast, picking up where we left off last podcast, looking at all the beautiful aspects of what it means to be saved. And so I really thank you for listening to the podcast, Understanding Christianity. I'm glad that you've taken the time to listen to this. If you're a Christian that just needs some uh, information, some teaching on the foundations of the faith, I hope you found this helpful. We also want this to be a place for those that don't necessarily agree with Christianity, or maybe you're an atheist, or maybe you're a skeptic, or maybe you just have questions. We want this to be a place where you can find out what the Bible teaches about Christianity. So we'd love for you to uh, listen and to give us feedback. Um, If you'd like to contact me directly and maybe ask some further questions, uh, you can go to my blog or to my website. The website is seancole.net, S-E-A-N-C-O-L-E.net. That's probably the best place to get a hold of me. You can go there and find out my, my email and contact information. And again, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. Let's listen to the podcast on salvation, part two. We're talking about salvation and all the aspects of salvation, and we kind of took a journey through Romans, and I had, I think, 15, 15 gospel declarations that I gave last week, and the last one we got to was that God has an order, an order in how He saves sinners. There's what we would call the order of salvation, And what I want us to do is to begin to discuss this tonight. There are 10 major aspects of our salvation. Some of them took place in eternity past. Some of them take place in time. And some of them will take place in the future. So when we talk about salvation, we're talking about this big umbrella. That kind of looks like an umbrella, doesn't it? This big umbrella of category with different shades of your salvation. So the purpose of looking at this is I don't want us to say, oh, there's 10 things related to our salvation. What I want us to do is I want us to come away appreciating all the things that God has done for us, okay? So I'm going to write all 10 of them down, and then we're going to kind of go through them, okay? And so when, I, when we put an order here, some of these happen, they may seem to you to happen at the same time in your experience, The Bible, if you look at the Bible in totality, it seems to give some type of order to salvation, okay? Now, some people would have a different order than I have. And when we get to the different items, we can agree to disagree on those, okay? So this is not dogmatic. This is what I believe the Bible teaches, but you don't necessarily have to agree with me on this tonight. But here's what what we start. We start with, in eternity past, we start with what we would call predestination or election, You don't necessarily have to write these down because they're going to be in order. I'm just going to write them all down so you can see them all at once. Uh, Then you've got what's called effectual calling. 
or calling. Then you have regeneration, number three. Then you have conversion, number four, which would the two aspects of conversion are repentance and faith. Then number five, you have justification. Number six, you have adoption. Number seven, you have sanctification. Number eight, you have perseverance. Number nine, you have death. And number ten, you have glorification. Okay, so big picture. Let's just look at the big picture, then we'll come back and take it down by parts, okay? So you guys just tell me, based upon this list, what happens in eternity past? Number one, okay, so this takes place in and this takes place in eternity past before the world was created, okay? The next one's effectual calling, regeneration, conversion, justification, adoption. These can kind of be put into a category of what happens in your experience when you trust Christ for salvation. Okay, it's it's a point in time. These all kind of work together, but there's a there's a definite difference between them and there's a definite order. Okay. So this is more um, like number one is eternity past. Two, three, four, five, six that kind of happen when you trust Christ for salvation. Number seven and eight are kind of tied together. Sanctification is the process of your Christian life as you live it out. Okay, so it started at your initial salvation, but it's going on. Perseverance means that you actually remain a Christian until you, you die, okay, that you don't lose your salvation. Then you die. Death is part of salvation because death is the final enemy. And then glorification takes what place when? That takes place in the future, either when Christ comes back uh, and we we have the the new heavens and the new earth and we get our new bodies. Okay, so these are all aspects. So so there's there's an already not yet, there's a past, present, and future aspect to your salvation. You can say, I was planned to be saved, I was saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. Okay, so it's... It's this huge, big-picture idea of your salvation. Now, all ten of these don't show up in this Romans passage, but what we're going to look at is what's normally called, this is called the golden chain of redemption, what we're going to look at. The golden chain of redemption or the golden chain of salvation, however you want to call it. Now, the question is, why is it called the golden chain? What's a chain? Links. Links, okay? So, like... That's like looking at chains sideways. So like if you have links on a chain, okay, they're interlocked. interlocked. What happens if one of the links is missing? The chain is broken, okay? In salvation, can any of the chains be broken or do they have to all be together? They all have to be together. So if if one of them is broken, then we have a problem. So what Paul is going to do is he's going to link all these things together and they're, they're true for a person that's saved, this linking of this, this chain of redemption. So let's look in the scriptures and see what the Bible says in Romans 8. All right, come on, PowerPoint. Is it coming on up there? Oh, she's got it weirdly animated. Okay, all right. So let's start. Actually, let's go to Romans eight twenty-eight, And we're going to read all the way through the very end. So I want us to read Romans 8, 28 through the end of the chapter. Very, very familiar passage of Scripture, but I want us to read it together. So Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life, nor death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the golden chain of redemption. And so my question is, the things that Paul lists there, are they true from first to last to everyone who's saved? Can you have a person, can you have, let me just ask it this way. Can you have a person predestined who's not called? Can you have a person predestined who's not called, who's not justified? And can you have a person who's not predestined, who's not called, who's not justified, who's not glorified? No, you, you, it has to be that. Now, the question is, who's Paul talking about? Look at Romans 8.30. Who is he talking about? Go back even further. Just the word, those. Okay? Does your Bible say those? Okay. So he's talking about the those. So my question is, who are, well, the question is, who, the question that we have to ask here, is Paul talking about people or actions? That God does. Does God do these things to people or does he do these things to actions? People? Well, it would be people because he uses the word those. Hey, guys, come on in. Oh, we, <laughs> sorry about that. Do you guys have, these are handouts here, too, for you guys. I'm Sean, by the way. Nice to meet you guys. Do we have extras? Is there... More back? There are more back there? Okay. Okay, cool. Okay, there you go. We're in Romans chapter 8. So. so it's a those. He's talking about people. And that comes into question because when we talk about number one on the list, predestination or election, the question is when it says God foreknew or God predestined, is he doing that to what he sees people will do, i.e. actions, or is he doing that to people themselves? It's people because of the whom and the those. Okay? So, what's the order? 
the first one we can all kind of put together. Can I erase this? Can you guys? I mean, we're going to get to all ten of these, but can I erase this? You guys cool with that? All right. You cool with that? All right. If not, too loud, too bad. It's already erased. I don't know if I was asking your permission or if I was just going to do it anyway. So, <laughs> so okay. I've, I've always wondered, is it okay if I erase this? No, you can't. Well, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> now, like if this was a, like a real class, like I teach at Colorado Christian and students are taking this to take a test, I would probably leave it up there out of respect, but you're not taking a test. Yeah. So, Okay, so here's the first, here's the first category. Predestination, that's weird, it went off the screen. Um, let's see if the next one goes off the screen. You know what, I'm going to reclose this and reopen it. Um, it's probably, it came on twice. Let's see. Oh, that's what happened. I double-clicked it. You got to be smart. I know what I did. There we go. Why is it, she must, my secretary has these funky little, okay. <laughs> Whatever. You got the bouncing, get the bouncing PowerPoint. Okay, so the first aspect of our salvation, big big picture, is it happens in eternity past. How do we know your election, your predestination happens in eternity past? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Paul says, even as he chose us in him, when, does it say there? Before the foundation of the world. So when did the choosing take place? Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So you got two words there. What do you have there? God chose and God did what? Predestined. When? Before, before time, okay, or before the, before the world was created in eternity past. The question that we've got to ask is, I come across people at times that say, you know, I don't believe in predestination or I don't believe the Bible teaches election. And I have to say, well, let's, let's back up because we've got the word predestination in the Bible. We've got the word choosing. The question then becomes, okay, how does God do it? The question is not, does God predestine? The question is, how does he do it? How does God choose? Or what's the basis for God's choosing? There's two choices. Here's choice number one. Did God ordain a plan or a people? There's two views. On what basis does God predestine people to salvation? Here's the first view, okay? I will call it conditional election. So we'll write it on this side of the the grid here. Conditional election. And the other one's called unconditional election. So before I give you guys a definition, what does conditional sound like? There's terms, okay, there's what? There's conditions that have to be met by a sinner in order for God to choose them. Okay? So let's ask the question, what, are the, what, are the, what, what, what saves a person? How do you get saved? By Christ. Yeah, you've got to, what's the biblical terminology? You've got to repent and believe. Okay. So, those are the conditions, right? Repenting and believing. So, nobody is saved without repenting and believing, right? So, just because a person's elect unto salvation doesn't mean that they're going to automatically be zapped one day. You still have to what? Repent and believe. Conditional election says that God predestines 
based on or on the basis of conditions met by the sinner. God looks down the quarter of time and sees who will choose him and who will reject him. And based upon foreseen faith or acceptance, he ratifies the sinner's decision. So let me give you an example of the conditional election. So God, all right, so I've given this before. So if you've you've heard this, that's all right. Let's say it's 1985 and Sally is 12 years old and she is at youth camp in 1985 as a 12-year-old. And it's the last night of camp, and the camp pastor is preaching the gospel, and she goes forward at the altar, and she kneels, and she, tra- she trusts Christ for salvation, and she prays to receive Jesus in 1985. Okay? The conditional election view says that in eternity past, before the world was created, God looked down. He foresaw. He looked down to that moment in time in 1985. He saw Sally choosing to trust Christ, And based upon what God saw, he then elects her. What happens if God sees her not choosing? God does not elect. So the conditions that have to be met is God has to see her faith. God has to see her repentance. And when God looks down and sees her choosing him, then God, I use the term ratify. What does ratify mean? God kind of puts his stamp of approval, God, God um, basically elects her based upon what he sees. Now, let's just stop and ask a question. Does your view of human sinfulness affect this view? Okay, some of you are like, yes, okay. So if the Bible teaches, as we looked at a few weeks ago, that humans are unable to come to Christ, if humans are sinful, if humans can't come without aid, and God looks down the quarters of time, what's he going to see? Is he ever, he's not going to see anybody coming to faith unless he does what? Helps them. So either way you look at it, God's still got to help. Okay? So the, the conditional election says God sees faith down to the future. He sees the person choose, and based upon what God sees, then he predestines that person okay that's the so what is what does unconditional view mean there are no conditions that god has to see because can humans meet conditions if they're dead in sin okay so here's the other view the other view says God chooses of his own pleasure and will for some to be saved and is not from any merit in them, i.e. their future choices or decisions. Okay, those are the two views. Any questions on those two views? Some are like, is there a third choice? There is one, but I'm not going to share it with you because it's too complicated. Um, So, is this a dogma or is this a doctrine? Is this an absolute essential that, like, depending on which view you hold to, is an absolute essential that you have to believe one way or the other in order to be saved? No, it's not. Okay. So, can we agree to disagree on which view you hold to? Yes. Yes. There are people in this church that hold to both views. Okay? Now, you guys know which view I hold to. I hold to this view. 
okay? And I'm not going to say that if you hold to this view that you're wrong. Um, I would just say that my understanding of the scripture lends me to, to understand this view based upon the totality of what I'm saying. So either way you look at it, the point is, in eternity past, what did God do? God chose. He either chose you based upon what he saw you do, or he chose you based simply because he wanted to choose you. And there was nothing in you that moved God to choose you. He just simply chose you. Okay? Now, what are the objections to this view? Come on, you guys are not struggling enough with this. I'm going to make you struggle. Okay. It doesn't seem fair. Okay. So this, this view would say, this doesn't seem fair. Okay. Before I answer that, does this view, is this view fair? Is the, un, is the conditional view fair? Really. Why is it not fair? Because uh, he, could, he, he could, some of the people he sees might not accept him as Christ. Right. Might not accept him as their... Okay, so in the conditional view of election, God looks down to the corridors of time and he sees some people rejecting him. And what does he do? He could have save them if he wanted to and he doesn't so you could say that's not fair because he sees who's going to choose and he doesn't choose them so that's unfair for god not to choose those who are going to reject him yes it could seem unfair for people who might not be able to make the choice so like zachary zachary (laughs) like people who have no understanding of what the scripture is and could not consciously make a choice or like the people in the deep, dark jungles of Africa who have never heard the gospel and they are not able to make a choice. I mean, that's going to be on either side. Yeah. I mean, either side you're going to have someone who you're going to go, okay, well, what about them? On yeah. either side. On both sides. You're going to have the fairness issue. Okay, so let's talk about fairness for a moment. What happens if a person, if, a, if God leaves the choice up to you and he could have saved another person who chose not to, if, if God looks down to the corridors of time and he sees two people and one chooses and one doesn't, and God could have chosen the one that doesn't, but he does not, and the person chooses, and the person that, that chooses Christ goes to heaven, will they have room to boast? Will there be something in them and not in the other person that made them go there? They, yeah, they could say, well, at least I... So... Do you see where I'm going with that? Yes, sir. You probably already covered this, but if why can't God have chosen everybody and through free will we have made the decision whether we're going to follow him or not? Mm-hmm. Well, that's one way to look at it. That, that would be more this one. The question is, does God choose everybody? Because if God chooses everybody, then what would be the ultimate result of that? Everybody would believe and do we know from experience that everybody believes no that's not not the final answer i mean he chooses everybody but not everybody chooses him right that's i know what you mean okay but if god chooses everybody then we're saying that god does something that doesn't get fulfilled he chooses everybody but then somehow his will is thwarted um so then aren't you running up against free will on this this view, would, this view would be more heavy on free will, depending on how you define free will. This view would say God, this view would say God 
values the free will of humans as the highest good and basically creates a world where humans are the final determiners. I mean, not final determiners, but humans have a really, really big say in their salvation in the sense that they've got the power to choose. Is that kind of what you're... Is that how you would define free will? Yeah. Okay. God could be an absolute and say, these people are going to follow me, these people are not. Mm -hmm. But because he loves us so much, he wants us to come to him freely. Mm -hmm. So he gives us the option to choose him. That would be, yeah, that would be this view. It's like like uh, a restaurant that's always open. You can choose to go in and eat, or you don't have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that understanding of free will takes into account that man has the capacity to choose. That man has not been his man's will is not enslaved to sin to where he's dead in sin and cannot come to Christ on his own. So this view over here would elevate the free will of man, saying that humans do have. There's no such, I mean, they would say there's total depravity, but there's not total inability in the sense that humans can still have the choice to come. They're still able. They're not dead in sin. Okay, that's what this view would say. This view would say humans are dead in sin. They're unable to come because of sin, and God must do something in them to create faith in order for them to come. That's the difference between the two views. Okay. One caricature of this view is that this view is unfair because God chooses just a small amount of people and um, it's just this small number that God chooses, just this really small number. Anywhere in the Bible does it say it's a small number? What does Revelation say? It's a number no man can count. It's a number of the sand on the seashores. It's the number of the stars in the heaven. So, you know, the, the caricature of the conditional, unconditional election view is that, well, God's, there's this small few that God's decided to save. And really the Bible says it's not a small few. It's actually this, this vast number. Um, any other questions on conditional? Hello. Con, that's right. Unconditional or conditional election. All right. So let's move to number two, which is effectual calling. So we've got this whole idea that there comes a point in time where God calls a sinner to salvation. What does Romans 8.28 say? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to what? His purpose. So what words do you have there? God has a purpose. And what does God do? God has called okay now go back to romans eight thirty. those whom he predestined he also okay so are those whom he predestined will they be called okay so the question then becomes well, okay what does it mean to be called and the bible speaks of two types of callings okay there's the outward call of the gospel to all people And there's the inward call of God to the elect that ensures their response. So let me explain the two types of calls. 
the outward call would be like on a Sunday morning when I'm preaching and I extend the message out to everybody that's there to trust in Christ for salvation, to believe in Jesus. I do that every week, right? In some way or another, I'm calling everybody there to come to faith in Christ. That's the outward call. Everybody hears it, right? It comes out of my mouth. It's the outward call. It's the general call. Okay. But there's also what's called the effectual or the internal call, which means what? Is everybody going to respond to the outward call? Okay. No. The inward call is where the Holy Spirit takes the message of the gospel and brings it to bear on your heart to make you understand and he calls you to salvation. In this view, would say the only people he do, the only people that benefit from the internal call are those whom he predestined. So the internal call goes to those whom God has chosen. The internal call. Yes, sir. Who what? Who what? <laughs> internal call. Well, it's called effectual calling. Why is it called effectual calling? What does effectual mean? That's maybe a big word. Not a big word, but it's not a word we use a lot. Or maybe a better word would be what? Why is it an effective calling? What does it mean if it's effective? It works. It means that when God calls, he, you're going to pick up the phone, okay? It's, it's going to work. When God calls, it's going to be effective. In other words, it's not going to be resisted it's going to be god's going to get through i'm not going to get caller what's it call waiting or caller i mean he's god's going to the effectual call is going to accomplish what god has sent to accomplish now let's look at some scriptures that teach this first peter 1 3 um now let's just talk about two and three for a moment on our list effectual calling and regeneration are almost exactly the same thing. There's a, there's a hair of difference between the two of them, but they're almost exactly the same thing. And that just basically, regeneration just basically means be born again. We'll talk about that in a minute. But First Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So who generates the being born again? Who caused it? God caused it. Does it say we caused our, did we cause ourselves to be born again? No, it said God, God caused it. So God called, God caused it, God initiated it. You also have John 5, 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Which means what? Does Jesus have the choice of who he's, does Jesus give life to everybody? No, no. It's who, who he chooses to give life to. Um, Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying God, or glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Okay, big question here. Let's talk about this one verse. Which comes first, believing or being appointed? Okay, so being appointed results in what? All right, so what does appointed mean? If you were appointed to eternal life, what does that mean? Yeah, you were chosen. You were, you were predestined. You were chosen. So if God chose you for salvation, you will believe. Okay? Now, 
This happens kind of like this in Acts 16, 14. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Who opened whose heart in that passage of Scripture? The Lord opened Lydia's heart. Okay. Now, were there other people there listening to Paul's message? Okay. Isn't that what we speak of as the Holy Spirit, though? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the Holy Spirit that does it. Yeah, he's the, the Holy Spirit is the one who opens the heart, the one who takes the blinders off our eyes, the one who comes and convicts us of sin and causes us to understand and causes us to be born again. That, that is the role of the Holy Spirit. This passage says the Lord, um, but if, you, you know, if we take a tr- the belief in the Trinity, the you know, Holy Spirit is also involved in that even though this one passage of scripture says the lord opened her heart but yeah it is the holy spirit so the text doesn't tell us but were there other people probably there listening and we don't know or if the lord opened their heart or not but we do know the lord opened lydia's heart okay this one of what yeah i mean if you go up in context there was a bunch of women down by the river okay so obviously, either Luke chose to just focus on Lydia because the church was planted in her house, or Luke chose to just say only, only God opened her heart out of all of them that were down there. Okay? We, we, you can take it either way. I don't think the Bible gives us enough information to be, to be dogmatic on that. So there comes a point in time where the Holy Spirit is going to call, convict, convince, do a work to bring about an understanding of the gospel in your heart. Then what happens next is regeneration. So what is regeneration? It's the secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us through the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit. This is often called being born again. Now let's look at some metaphors of what the Bible uses when it talks about being born again because the Bible gives a lot of different metaphors or, or images. Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, 26-27. Now who's speaking here? This is God. He's prophesying of a day in the future where God would do this. God says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So what's the imagery that God uses here? We have dead, stony, evil hearts that need to be replaced. And who replaces that? God. So one of the ways we can, let's just think of all the different images here. What's the terminology there? He gives us a new heart a new spirit and he also puts the holy spirit within us okay what did jesus say in john 3 oh you must be born again so we can call it getting a new heart getting new spirit getting the holy spirit in us being born again um john 1, 12-13 says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born. Okay, born how? He, three ways that we're not born. One, we're not born of blood, which means what? It's not a natural thing. You know, we're not. Number two, the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So what causes us to be born again? 
It's not the will of man or the will of flesh. It's God is the one who calls, causes us to be born. So we're born again. You can also say we're born of God. And then we've got John 3, 8. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. So born of the Spirit. This whole idea of wind blowing where it wishes. So you've got a lot of these images. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were, what? Dead in our trespasses. What did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. So another imagery is what? He made us, which assumes that before that we were. Okay, so what I'm going to do here, let's just look at the last one, and then we're going to do some opposites here. And then 1 Peter 1.23, since you've been born again, not of, a, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. How does this being born again come through? It comes through the preaching of the, the word of God. So what's the opposite of a new heart? An old heart. <laughs> what's, the, <laughs> an old heart. what's the opposite of a new spirit? Our dead, dead spirit. Or a, let's put a stony heart. The opposite of the Holy Spirit, I guess, would be your flesh. Um, born again would be you're still in your flesh. You're still a sinner. Those are all the kind of things. Made us alive means we were... Okay, so all of these things are true of us before salvation. We had a stony, dead, fleshly... Or stony, dead heart that was unresponsive to God. The Holy Spirit came in a point of time, and He caused us to be born again or regenerated. Regeneration really means to be generated again. Regeneration or reborn. Regenerated. Okay? Now, here's the big rub that also divides people throughout history on which side of the fence you're going to fall on. You know, there are two views of election. So let's look at our list so far. So you've got... You've got election, you've got calling, you've got regeneration, and the next one we have is what? Conversion or repentance and faith. Now, a lot of Christians would switch number three and four, would they not? Most Christians switch those. Most Christians would believe that what? When you repent and believe, then you're born again. I've switched them because of my personal belief that God causes you to be born again and the first gifts He gives you in the new birth is repentance and faith. That repentance and faith are actually gifts of regeneration. Um, So different people will put those. If you look at a systematic theology, and by the way, she's not leaving to be rude. trying to remind she's going to check on zachary who's in our so it's not like she's going to say hey we're so she want to make sure you guys knew that she was going to check on zachary who's in our office or in my office so um um so let's talk about conversion now why this this is a big issue because um well let's just do it let's just um i don't want to do a show of hands but do you see how a lot of christians Groups or or belief systems out there would put repentance and faith first, that your repentance and faith generates being born again. 
okay? But if you are dead in sin and you are unable to come without God doing something, then can you in and of yourself exercise repentance and faith without God first doing something to change you? God must change you through regeneration. Now, when we experience these, they're almost like they're simultaneous. When you're believing in Jesus, you're not thinking to yourself, right now at this moment, I'm being regenerated by the sovereign spirit through the effectual calling of the Holy... You know, you're not thinking that. Okay, what are you thinking? This makes sense. I'm a sinner. I know I'm going to hell and I better believe in Jesus as the only way of salvation. I'm trusting in Christ. You're, be- you're believing in Jesus, okay? Why do you believe in Jesus? Because you've been regenerated. Okay, so let's talk about repentance and faith. Conversion. Repentance and faith. All right, what is conversion? Conversion is our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of our sins and trust in Christ for salvation because God has sovereignly caused us to be born again. Now, let's talk about faith for a moment. Because there are three aspects to saving faith. And if you don't have all three of them, you could have a false convert. Okay, so let's talk about it. Because I, I want to spend some time on this because I think especially here in northeastern Colorado and there's people you may know. Okay, so let's talk, let's talk about the first one. First aspect of saving faith is you've got to have knowledge. You must know the facts of the gospel and the person and the work of Christ. Would you guys agree that nobody's saved without knowing who Jesus is and what he did by dying on the cross? We've got to have knowledge, right, of who Jesus is. You've got to know the, the gospel story, right? Okay, is that enough to save you? The Bible says the demons believe that. The demons believe there's God. Are the demons saved? Are there a lot of people in this world who have knowledge of who Jesus is and knowledge of his cross and resurrection who are not saved? Okay, there's a lot. So just knowledge of the facts of who Christ is and what he's done historically does not mean you have saving faith. Okay? You also have to have, number two, conviction. Conviction takes it the next step and says we must also know this to be true and realize that we're sinners in need of him. There's one thing to say, I know the facts of who Jesus is. There's another thing to say, I am a sinner who needs Jesus. And I've been convinced of that, and I believe he's the only way, and I better put my faith in him because I'm convinced of this for me. There's a difference, right? You've, you've been convicted that who Jesus is is true and what he's done is true, and it needs to be true for you. But that's still not enough. What do you have to do? The final aspect of saving faith is trust. You've got to receive and rest on him alone for salvation. It's not faith in facts, but in a person. You've got to actually put all of your trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Okay? So it involves all three. You've got to know the facts. You've got to be convinced and know that you're a sinner, but you've got to personally put your faith and trust in him. Okay? So you have to believe. Okay, so in salvation, who believes? You believe, right? You have, does the Holy Spirit believe for you? You believe, right? Or if you like to make it, you know, if you're on this side of the fence, I make the choice. I choose, I believe, I trust. The question, you know, behind it comes, okay, why do you believe and why do you trust? The different views would say one says I've used my free will to come to him. The other one says God chose me and has given me the gifts of repentance and faith. But either way you look at it, you still have to personally believe. Okay? But you also have to repent. 
Turn to Mark chapter 1 for just a minute. Keep your finger in Romans, but turn to Mark chapter 1. This, these are the very first words out of Jesus' mouth. I'll tell you the first words out of Jesus' mouth and the last words out of Jesus' mouth. Probably important, huh? First words and last words. Mark has traditionally been um, considered actually the first gospel written, although it's second in order to Matthew. There's scholarship that kind of puts Mark in priority that it was written first. And so let's look at verse 14 of chapter 1, Mark, Mark 1, 14. Now after John, this is John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. He's preaching. And what's his message? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So what are, what are the words that Jesus comes starting out with? Repent and believe. Repent and believe, okay? Not just repent and not just believe, but repent and believe. Okay, go to Luke chapter 24. He's telling his disciples what to do when he leaves. Tells them what they should preach, what they should tell, and by extension, what we should be doing. So look at Luke 24, verse um, 46. Luke 24, 46. This is Luke's, Luke's recount of Jesus' last words to his disciples. And he said to them, It is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That's the gospel. And that what? repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So what should we be be, be preaching to people? You need to repent. What did Jesus say when he first came? Repent, believe the gospels. You go trace all the sermons and acts. What do the apostles preach? Repent. Okay, so the question is, what does it mean to repent? What is repentance? Well, it's it's the flip side of the coin of faith, okay? So if faith is turning to Jesus Repentance means you're turning from you're turning from sin and turning towards Christ. So it's a, it's a turning, it's a 180 degree turning from sin. And there's some things that you have to to deal with in the same way that you dealt with faith. Okay, intellectually or in your mind with repentance, you've got to recognize that it's sin and it offends a holy God. You've got to come to the point where when you're confronted with the gospel, I understand this is sin. I understand I'm a sinner. I understand that what I'm doing is offensive to God. I need to understand I'm accountable. I understand it in my head. I know it. I'm a sinner. But also it means emotionally that you see you have an overwhelming sense of sorrow for sin. Not only do you know you're a sinner, but you begin to feel the weight that you're a sinner. I'm sad about this. It's grieving me. It's bothering me. I'm overwhelmed to the point that I have sinned against God. Not only do I know I've sinned against God, I'm feeling it and it's heavy. But then with your will volitionally, you've actually got to change directions. You've actually got to stop doing what you're doing and turn from that sin and turn towards Christ. That's what repentance is. Okay? Let me give you a definition, a great definition from Martin Lloyd-Jones. That's my favorite definition. It's not on your, it's not on your paper, but um, I'll read it slowly so, since you don't have it in front of you. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones defines repentance. Repentance means that you realize that you are, guilt, you are a guilty vile sinner in the presence of God, that you deserve the wrath and punishment of God, that you are hellbound. It means that you begin to realize that this thing called sin is in you, that you long to get rid of it, 
that you turn your back on it in every shape and form. You renounce the world, whatever the cost. You denounce yourself. You take up your cross and you go after Christ. Your friends and family and the whole world may call you a fool and you may have to suffer financially, but it makes no difference. That is repentance. That's a good definition. So repentance and faith. Okay, so there comes a point in time where you actually believe. So we can get all hung up on the differences in the views of election. Is it conditional? Is it unconditional? But here's the point. Is anybody saved without placing their personal trust in Jesus? No. So what's the most important thing we need to do as a church? We can argue about election all day long. And it's kind of an interesting conversation, but is anybody going to get saved by arguing about election? How are people going to get saved? We've got three things. They've got to be able to hear the gospel in a way they can understand it so that they can repent and believe. So what's our job? To proclaim the gospel. So we're in Romans, right? Go, go over to Romans chapter 10 for just a minute. Paul gives an argument here and says, listen, this is how people get saved. You are elect unto salvation, but being elected doesn't mean you're automatically saved. There has to come a point in time where you personally repent and believe. Now, one of the views, my view would say you repent and believe because God's going to make sure you do it. But there ha- you still have to do that. Now, look at Romans 10, verse 14. Actually, verse 13. Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Is that a promise? What's the promise? If you call on Jesus, you'll be saved. Okay? Paul brings up an issue. Okay. Hmm. Are there people right now that have never heard of Jesus? And if they've never heard of Jesus, then how can they call upon him to be saved? And if they can't call upon him to be saved, will they ever be saved? So what does Paul say here? Look at verse 14. How then will they call on him who they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But Paul's saying we've got to send people. People aren't going to get saved unless they hear, and people are going to hear unless somebody tells them. And people aren't going to tell them unless you go. So whose burden is it really to do this whole thing? Ours. We've got to be about going and telling everybody. We can't discriminate against who we're going to tell the gospel to. Have you ever heard me on a Sunday morning say this? I guarantee if you, if you say you've heard me say this, I'll, I'll call you on. Has anybody ever heard me say this on a Sunday morning? All of you in this room that are listening who are among the elect, this message is for you. If you're not part of the elect, just disregard what I'm saying because it doesn't matter anyway. Has anybody ever heard me say that on a Sunday morning? I hope not. No, I've never said that. What do I say? Whoever's here, believe in Jesus. Call upon Jesus. Call upon the name of the Lord. Trust in the Lord. My job is not to try to figure out who the elect are and who the non-elect are. That's not my job. Charles Spurgeon said it would be so easy if he could go down the streets of London and see a white stripe painted on people's back of who was elect. He'd go and just preach to them. But we don't have that privilege. We don't know who they are. In either of you, one thing we can control is what? Getting the message out. So our job as individuals in this church is to share the gospel with all creation. That's why we go to India. That's why I was in India two weeks ago. That's why um, 
you know, I was in the village sharing the gospel and they got mad at me. And so, but how are they going to hear unless somebody goes and tells them? So there comes a point in time when you repent and believe. And so what happens when you repent and believe? What's the promise from Scripture? All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay? Now, let's talk a little bit about your experience in that. Because... Some people, I think we talked about this before. Some people have dramatic conversion experiences. Like it was very dramatic. Some people, it was like, you know, it just kind of made sense. Some people, it was an emotional experience in a worship service. Some people, you're reading a book by yourself. Some people, it happened when you were a child. Some people, it happened when you're an adult. Are all of our experiences of salvation going to be the same? But is what happened to us always going to be the same? Theologically, what happens to us is all the same. But experientially, how God chooses to have that happen is different. So we could probably go around this room and talk about how all of us came to faith in Christ and it would all be different. But all those elements are there. You all repented and believed. You were born again. The Holy Spirit called you. In eternity past, God chose you. And then so that, that happened. Okay, so let's talk about justification. Did I do the bank account drawing last week? Okay, so we won't spend a lot of time on this. So the moment that you repent and believe, remember what I said last week, the moment you trust Christ, your debt of sin goes to Jesus and His righteousness comes back to you and you're declared not guilty. That happens. So justification is part and parcel of your repentance and faith. You are justified when you place your faith. So what does it not mean? Justification does not mean merely pardon or forgiveness. It doesn't just mean you're forgiven. As great as that is. Because what did I say about the bank account? If you have a negative gazillion dollars and Jesus pays your debt and it goes out of your account, what does that leave you at? So you're pardoned, right? But you still only have zero. Pardon doesn't get you into heaven alone. You need what? You need a positive, you need a positive righteousness, a positive count. It's not merely restoring to a position of favor. It's not making the sinner inwardly righteous because we're always going to keep sinning. And it's not a process. Is justification a process? No. It's a one-time act. Sanctification is a process, but if justification was a process, then we've got Roman Catholicism. We'll talk about, yeah, somebody's like, if sanctification is a, or if justification is a process, what do I mean by a process? It means that at one moment you're justified, the next moment you're not, the next moment you're justified, the next moment you're not. You never know if you're justified. So how do you keep justified? You do the sacraments to keep yourself justified in this process. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches once it happens, it's a done deal. You're you're justified once and for all. So it's legal language. It's a forensic declaration by judge. God the judge declares us to be not guilty. And therefore, we're not liable to condemnation or wrath because the demands of justice have been satisfied on our behalf. Now, let's talk about Roman Catholicism. I know we did this a few weeks ago, and some of you were upset, but we hopefully won't get upset again. I just want to talk a little bit about their view of justification because this is where the Protestant Reformation... By the way, what was the Protestant Reformation fought over? Two things. Two big things. 
Sola Scriptura, which means what? Scripture alone, or Bible, the authority of the Bible alone. And the other one was what we call sola fide, which is faith alone. So the two big issues in the Protestant Reformation was, are we going to believe that the Scriptures are the authority, or is it the Roman Catholic Church that's the authority? Are we going to believe it's faith alone that saves, or is it faith plus works that you do in the sacraments? Okay, so the Council of Trent has basically said, and this is the official teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, if you believe in salvation by faith alone through grace alone, you are what they would call cursed. You're anathema. You're a heretic. You're outside the bounds of orthodoxy if you believe in salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Okay, so here's what they teach. I'm going to give you their wording. The Council of Trent said that we receive the benefit of Christ's death through what they call the laver or the labor of regeneration. That's baptism. So why do they baptize babies? It regenerates the baby in the sense that they get grace until they keep sinning enough to lose that grace. I've given the gas tank analogy before. Can I give the gas tank analogy again? I think it's helpful. In the Roman Catholic view, when you're baptized as a baby, your gas tank is full of grace. But what happens when you start living your life and you start sinning? You get almost down to empty, right? You run out of grace. If you die with your gas tank on empty, you go to purgatory. So what do you have to do? You have to always make sure your gas tank is full. How do you keep your gas tank full? The sacraments, you keep doing the sacraments. Either it's through the Eucharist or through a priest or through Hail Marys. Those get your gas tank. And so you're always up and down, up and down. You're never really sure if you've got a full tank of grace. Now, what does the Bible say? Does the Bible say that we have a gas tank that fluctuates up and down? What does it say? The moment we're saved, we are saved. We're, 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 we're washed, we're cleansed, we're forgiven. Okay? So in the Roman Catholic view, justification, when I say the Roman view, I'm talking about the Roman Catholic view, is not permanent, for it can be undone by the commission of a mortal sin. It's conditional justification, one that is not permanent, but depends upon the continued faithfulness of the person. Okay, so if you keep committing mortal sins, you're going to mess up your justification. That's why you have to go to a priest. That's why you have to go to confession. That's why you have to do the sacraments. Now, this is what they call infusion. This is the way they believe you get righteousness. Okay? They don't believe in grace alone, faith alone. They believe in what's called infused righteousness. So in Roman Catholic theology, justification involves an infusion of grace into the individual. This involves a subjective change in the person. Because of this infusion, he or she is enabled through the power of grace to do good works. These works are meritorious in God's sight. So how is that different? What are they saying? Think of infusion as getting your gas tank full. Works are important. Works Works have to keep you in God's good graces. So God infuses you with grace to be able to do the works to make Him happy. So you still have to have grace. The Catholics aren't saying you don't have to have grace, but what's the purpose of grace? To give you the good works to make sure you keep yourself in grace okay 
So it's this infusion, which is more like getting your gas tank filled. Okay? The Bible teaches what we would call a forensic righteousness that comes to us from outside of ourselves in the person of Christ. It declares us righteous. It doesn't change us to be righteous or give us a boost to do good work so we continue earning our salvation. It's a declaration where God looks down and says, you are righteous on account of Christ once and for all. I don't have to keep infusing this righteousness in you to keep you in my good graces. I see you as accepted permanently because of Christ. You have a permanent record of righteousness. This is called imputation, not infusion, but we as Protestants, when God imputes or credits, remember the bank account thing? When God credits or imputes or reckons righteousness of Christ, He's acting as a sovereign judge, crediting us with the work of another, Jesus Christ. Okay? So, the basis of our justification. In Protestant theology, it is the righteousness of Christ alone. In Roman Catholicism, Christ gives us grace so that we can do good works to earn our way to heaven. So don't ever believe, when a, don't ever mischaracterize, we don't want to mischaracterize Roman Catholics. They believe in grace. They believe in faith. No caller ID. Somebody's trying to call me. Um, Roman Catholics believe in grace. So don't ever say that, well, Roman Catholics, they don't believe in grace. They believe in grace. They believe in faith. But what do they not put at the end of them? Alone. They don't believe... See, here's the difference between Roman Catholicism and Protestant theology. They do not believe in Scripture alone. Why? Why do they not believe in Scripture alone? Because they have the Apocrypha, but they also have the, the, church, the Pope, the Church, the Roman Catholic Church is on par with Scripture. So if the Pope mandates something down through the cardinals, it's on even plane with the tradition. The tradition of the Church is on even plane with the Scriptures. Do they believe in grace? Yes. But is it grace alone? No, it's grace that's given to you to help you do what? Do the sacrament, do the works. Do they believe in faith? Yes. Is it faith alone? No, it's faith plus works. So Roman Catholics do believe in grace. They do believe in faith. They do believe in Jesus. They do believe in the Bible. But the difference is they don't put the word alone at the end of them. Okay? And so that's why it gets tricky when we talk to our Roman Catholic friends. Because the big categories, they believe the same as we do, don't they? Do they believe in Jesus? Yes. Do they believe the virgin birth? Do they believe the death on the cross? Do they believe the resurrection? Do they believe the Trinity? Do they believe in God? Yes. When you look at those dogmatic beliefs, us and Roman Catholics are right there. Where it deviates is when it comes to salvation. So my question for you is, just because you believe all the other things, but you get it wrong on salvation, how do you deal with that? What does Paul say? As Pastor Andrew, youth Pastor Andrew preached a few weeks ago. If somebody comes sharing another gospel, is it another gospel? Is what the Roman Catholics believe another gospel? Okay, some of you are hesitant to say that. Is it another gospel? Okay. So if it's another gospel, we've got to be careful. I'm not saying that every Roman Catholic is lost. I'm not saying that there's no such things as a saved Roman. I'm not saying that, that you can't have saved Roman Catholics just as much as you can have lost Baptists and saved Baptists. What I'm saying is, is that 
I'm not judging individuals within the Roman Catholic Church. I'm looking at their system and their official teachings. And their official teachings and their system and their dogma and their papal decrees are all a different gospel. So you may have Roman Catholics within the Roman Catholic Church that are truly saved despite bad theology. And that's a testimony to God's grace. So we just need to be careful when we say that. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm targeting the belief system, not individuals within that. Because I know a lot of you still have friends and family members that are, that are you know, deeply entrenched in, in Roman Catholicism. Yes? Do they believe then that the curtain was torn so that we didn't have to have a mediator to go through? Nope. They don't understand it. The priest is called the Vicar of Christ. And when he does the Eucharist, he stands as the substitute. He pulls Jesus down from heaven as a victim on the table to be crucified afresh. And then the body and blood literally of Jesus are in the elements of the Eucharist. So you have a man being in control of Jesus, Jesus being a victim, not a finished atonement, and the literal body and blood happening. So their understanding of the atonement is way off, officially. Now those that are taking Eucharist or taking the Mass every week may not understand that, unless the priest clearly explains it. They may just be thinking, hey, it's a ritual I'm going, I'm taking the communion, and this is what I'm doing. They probably have no idea. If I were to explain that to some of them, they may be shocked, because they may not know that's what they're doing. But that's what the official teaching says is going on. The priest knows that's going on. He knows what he's doing. He may not communicate that to the people. I don't know how you could be a priest in the Roman Catholic Church and not know you're doing that because you're trained in that ordination to do that. Any other questions on justification? Or We've covered a lot of ground tonight. We're still not done. Okay, number six. So after we've got this righteousness, after we've been um, converted, after we've repented and believed, God does this wonderful thing called adoption. God adopts us into his family. Now, let's talk about our condition before we were saved. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. This talks about our life before we were saved. Because Paul says, you were. He doesn't say you are. He says, you were. So he's talking to Christians who this is once was them. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So what terminology does he use there? It's children terminology, right? So what does it mean to be a child of wrath? If you're a lost person and you're non-Christian, you're a child of wrath. So who's your daddy? (laughs) It's not God. If you're a child of wrath, you're outside of God's family. You're an orphan child. You're a child who has no legitimate claim to God because you're under his wrath. Okay? So what happens when you become a Christian? What does God do? God takes you from being a child of wrath to a child of who? God or child of the Father. And what God does is the biblical terminology is he adopts us. He adopts us into his family. So now we can be part of God's family. We can call him daddy. You can say, who's your daddy now? God, the father. 
Um, and this is kind of an image in the Old Testament of God the Father. Um, Psalm 103, 13 through 14, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Before we, when we were a child of wrath, what was the only way God related to us? The only way God related to us was that of a judge. All he could do was judge us because of our sin. We were under his condemnation. But once we get saved, we now become a child. And how does he relate to us? He relates to us as father. John 1.12, we looked at this earlier. But to all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to what? To become children of God. So we have this wonderful right. It's a privilege, a right to become children of God that we didn't have before because we were children of wrath. What was our condition before salvation? We were enslaved to sin. We were in bondage to Satan. But now because of adoption, we are sons and daughters and we can cry, Abba, Father. As a child of God, we no longer live in fear, fear of judgment, fear of condemnation, but we live in the freedom of being a child forever. Okay. All right, up to this point, in the order of salvation, we've looked at things that have happened in eternity past and things that happen at the point of time where you trusted Christ for salvation. Okay. But where probably most of you are tonight, you've been saved for a while, and nobody's dead here yet. Nobody's gone to heaven yet. So we're living the Christian life every day. This is what's called, number seven on our list, sanctification. Now, I've drawn this before, but I'll draw it again. Let's just draw a graph here. This is your conversion, okay? So this is when you believed in Jesus. This is when you were born again. This is when you were saved. This is when you were justified. This is when you die or when you go to heaven. Either Jesus comes back or you go to heaven. Is your path a perfect straight line of obedience? Come on now. What does it look like? For most of us, it looks like this, doesn't it? Peaks and valleys, you know, like, ooh, I had a really bad rebellious time there. Oh, I backslid there. Oh, I had some really good growth there. But if you plotted the trajectory of your life, if you plotted it, it would show progress. It would show growth, would it not? Okay, so sanctification is really this growth process to be more like Jesus. Now, I want to compare this to justification because we just talked about justification. If we get justification and sanctification mixed up, you will have some schizophrenic, frustrated Christians on your hands. I don't want anybody to be that, okay? So what is justification? Justification involves, this is justification. It involves our legal standing, our once and for all legal standing because of righteousness. It's once for all time. It can never be undone. It's it's always, always there. It's entirely God's work. God is the one that declares us justified. God does it. He makes us just. We are, it's perfect in this life. There's no degrees. We're, we're no, you know, there's not degrees of justification. One day you're more justified. The next day you lose it. It's, there's not degrees. You, you are always justified. And it's the same in all Christians. I can say every Christian here is equally justified. Okay? But not everybody here is equally sanctified. What is sanctification? Sanctification involves our internal condition, our hearts, our growth, the sin in our lives, how we deal with it. It's continuous throughout our life. 
This is something we have to cooperate with God. He's not going to do it all for us. We've got to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's not perfect in this life, and it's greater in some than in others and at different times of your life. So let's talk about the beginning of sanctification. When did it happen? Well, it really happened when you were regenerated. Because what happens when you were regenerated? The Holy Spirit came and washed you and lived inside you and started that process. You can't be sanctified unless you're, you got the Holy Spirit. So um, Titus 3, 4 through 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, okay, not because of that, but according to His own mercy. How did He do this? By washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So when did this start? When God, the Holy Spirit, washed us and regenerated us. It's that point in time. It started, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There came a point in time when you got saved where God started the sanctification process. But it's progressive. I don't mean progressive like the auto. Is it flow? Is flow the auto, progressive auto? Is that flow? Okay. I'm trying to remember if it's the gecko. No, it's Geico. All the different... Or the, or the Chris Paul, all the, all the, they have too many commercials on car insurance. Progressive. What does progressive mean? Progressive sanctification. What does progressive mean? It increases over time. It, it progresses. So this is something that's going to happen to you continually, okay? So your goal in life is to, to, to grow in Christ. So um, 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Spirit who is, or comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Let me give you guys a little slogan. You've heard me say this before, it's not on your sheet. The more you Here we go. The more you look at Jesus, the more you look like Jesus. That's what he's saying there. The more you fix your eyes on Jesus, the more you focus on Jesus, the more you worship Jesus, the more you fix your mind on Jesus, the more you're going to begin to look like Jesus. You're going to be transformed into his image. So just remember that. The more you look at Jesus, the more you're going to look like Jesus. So our goal is to always be looking at Christ. And we're never going to get finished. Paul says in Philippians 3, 12 through 14, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. This is Paul speaking. I'm not arrived, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Paul basically says, I haven't haven't arrived yet. I'm going to keep pressing forward. I'm going to... Keep progressing in this life. Keep growing. Hebrews tells us in 12.1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Let us progress. Let us run. Let us get rid of sin. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.15 and 16, But as he is who called you is holy, you also be holy 
and all your conduct, since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24, we'll eventually get there on Sunday mornings. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He might get around to doing it. (laughs) Is that what your Bible says? He will surely do it. What's he surely going to do? God is faithful to surely do what? Sanctify you. Make sure that you are complete. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, let's just look at this verse for a moment. What happens if all you have is verse 12? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. If that's all you had, would that be kind of scary? Who's, who's, whose work would it be all up to? You. You've got the responsibility. Now, do we have the responsibility? Yes. Verse 12, Paul says, you grow. You progress. I'm kind of paraphrasing there. Okay, thanks, Paul. You've given me a lot of hope here. How do I do it? If it's left up to me, I can't do this. Or you think, oh, I can do this. What does verse 13 say? It is God who... So who's working in you? God works in you. So who's working? Who's working? Who's working? You're working. (laughs) You're working and God's working. But who's working? You. But who's working? God. Which one is it? You or God? Yes. It's not fair. But what does... Okay, so the question is, what does God do? There's two things God does. At the last part of that verse, God works in you to do what? He works to will and to work. Now, two things God works in you, two things God gives you. What's the will? God gives you the desire. Is desire enough? God also gives you what? The ability or the power. So not only do you have the desire to do it, but God has given you everything you need to do it. So at the end of the day, if you grow... Who gets the credit? God, because God worked in you. But who did it? You did. But how did you do it? Because God worked in you. You confused? If there's any fruit of the Spirit or any growth, who's responsible for that? God. But how did you get there? You. Who did it in you? God. How did He do it? He gave you the desire. He gave you the ability. So at the end of the day, you did it, but who did it for you? God, who gets all the glory? Okay, you got it, all, you got it down, Pat. Right? <laughs> all right. Um, I'm going to stop there before we go into perseverance because it's linked to sanctification. Perseverance just basically means that, we'll talk about this next week, it means that if you are truly saved, God will make sure you stay saved. Some people call it once saved, always saved. Some people call it eternal security. Some people call it perseverance of the saints. However you want to look at it, a true Christian will never lose his or her salvation and God will make sure that you finish the race. So it's part of your sanctification, but it's that ending, making sure that you end well, either before you die or before Jesus comes back.
All right, in the last 11 minutes, any questions, comments, or snide remarks or clarifications? I think I'm going to lose my voice. There's no class next week. I'm sorry. There's no class next week. Spring break. So please do not come next week, Wednesday night. No Wednesday night activities next week. Any questions? Dodie, you have a question? It doesn't matter. It doesn't count. So what's yeah, that's a good point. What's the bottom line? That God gets... The glory. That's how we started everything, didn't we, last week? Everything's about the glory of God. Yes, Don. I've been thinking about this since last week, meaning that just when you first listed all the ten things, it's just what Christ accomplishes in our, just on the cross, what he accomplished, and just thinking of all the nuances of salvation and what he's brought because mm-hmm. of that. Yeah, it's one it's thing. Amazing. Yeah, it's one thing to say, I'm saved. It's another thing to say, wow, here's all the beautiful, powerful, deep ways that Christ has truly saved me. And it didn't start with me. It started in eternity past with God. And it's going to end with God. I often wonder, this is just Sean thinking out loud. Well, let's just turn there real quick. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. My favorite, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I think about this a lot. It's it's kind of mind-boggling when you start when you when when I at least for me when I start thinking about this one passage of scripture it takes me on some deep it takes me in some deep waters of thought and I still don't know if I fully understand it because I'm trying to put myself in the mind of Christ while he's dying on the cross I don't think anybody can do that but let's look at Hebrews 12:2 Looking to Jesus or fix your eyes on Jesus so Paul, the right Paul, it's not Paul, but the writer of Hebrews is saying, look to Jesus, fix your eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Who for the joy that was set before him. Now, I have to, st- I have to stop and think about that for a moment. All the shame, all the pain, all the agony that Jesus experienced on the cross, it says here there was a joy that was set before him. What was the joy that was set before Jesus when he was dying on that cross? I have a couple of thoughts. I don't know if the Bible fully answers it, but I have a couple of thoughts. Two big things. One, I think the joy that was set before him was that he was accomplishing the work of his Father, and it brought him great joy to, do, to, to say it is finished and accomplish what God had for him to do. So it brought him joy to obey his father. But number two, I think it brought him joy knowing that what he was doing was going to purchase us. He had us in his mind. And when he's dying in excruciating pain, he's thinking of the joy before him that he's going to win us as his people. That's mind-boggling to me because I would not think the cross would be joyful. But it shows how much Jesus truly loves us that he was willing to go there and it was joy for him because he knew what was on the other side. He knew he was going to be obedient to his father and he knew he was going to get what he paid for and that's us. Um, Those are some deep things to think about. What really was that joy that was set before Jesus when he died on the cross? Isaiah 53 says, He shall see his offspring. Well, let me turn there real quick because Isaiah 53 
says, yeah, Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. This is all about Jesus. Verse 10, Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. What is Jesus seeing on the cross? He shall see his... What is Jesus seeing when he's dying on the cross? What's the word used there? Which means what? So Jesus sees something on the cross. What does he see when he's on the cross? He sees his offspring, which means we're not even there yet, are we? He sees in his mind, while he's hanging on the cross, the people whom he's dying for. Okay, now let's take it one, one verse next and see what it says. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and what? Be satisfied. Jesus will be satisfied in seeing his offspring. In other words, Jesus would experience joy that was set before him, knowing that on the cross he was seeing those for whom he was dying. And it brought him satisfaction and joy. That's a hard thing to think about. I mean, mind-boggling thing to think about. Because you're you're thinking about the implications of what Christ did on the cross, but kind of what Don said, all the things that Jesus accomplished for us when he died on the cross, it's amazing. 